Good evening. I'd like to welcome you to Green Templeton College. Um, this is the uh, first in a series of four uh, seminars that we're going to hold on uncertainty and uh, in, in, in its role in decision making. And uh, this is an idea that was put together by a number of people from uh, from the uh, the research fellows and uh, and one uh, governing body fellow. Uh, that we thought it would be interesting to have this type of lecture or a series just to explore the different ways uh, different groups look at uncertainty. And part of the problem is, is that uncertainty for a lot of people is seen as a barrier to making decisions. Oh, it's uncertain, so we don't have to do anything. And uh, we thought, well, yeah, it, uh, uncertainty means you have to think differently. And I know in different fields, people do think differently. And so what we did is we thought we'd gather some people from different areas uh, to talk about how they deal with uncertainty and how they are using the information to make decisions, but also recognizing that uncertainty. So we have, this is, as I said, the first in a series of four. And then we're, you'll notice that we're taping these. And this, uh, this lecture will go up on uh, iTunes U. And we'll make sure you, if you're, we'll get the URL out on the, the, the other ones that are coming out so you'll be able, be able to see that. But the whole idea was is that we would use these four seminars that we're going to hold as a basis for a workshop that we'll have afterwards that will be informed by all of these. And we'll have, so we're going to run a workshop at the end. Two of those lectures are uh, this term. And if everything goes well, the next two will be next term. And we're having a little, uh, we're, we're very fortunate that Jim was able to join us and our other speaker in two weeks. But we're having a little trouble with the other two and we'll, resolve that. But anyways, our first lecture today, or seminar today, will be is with uh, Jim Watson. And uh, Jim is from, as it says there, is from the Sussex Energy Group, uh, the SPRU Science and Technology Policy uh, Research uh, Program. And he's going to talk about dealing with uncertainties in UK energy policy, some lessons from experience. And that's what we're, each one of these lectures is really going to focus on, is some lessons from experience. So, Jim, I will not take any more of your time, and we look forward to your, like, your seminar. Okay, thanks very much, Roger, and thanks all for coming. Um, it's a select audience, so um, I hope uh, it's worth your while. Um, so, my, my take on, on the brief I've been given is very much to talk about uncertainty and how it's dealt with in the UK policy system, because that's the nature of the research that I and many of my colleagues in my team do on energy policy. Um, it's an area of uh, government policy where there is a lot of uncertainty. Um, there are huge uncertainties I'm not even going to talk about, you know, sitting behind the particular imperative to reduce carbon emissions, for example. Uh, so I'm not really going to get into the uncertainties around climate science, for example, because I'm not a climate scientist. I kind of, uh, I'm a user of climate science, or at least some of its implications. So I won't get into those uncertainties, but even if you put those aside, there's many others that you can talk about. So I'm going to use some of my experience over the last, you know, mainly five years or, or more to kind of inform, if you like, an analysis of how government mainly, but other stakeholders out there in the energy policy debate deal with this uncertainty and to what extent they're quite happy with it and that's actually quite a useful thing to have for them and to what extent actually uncertainty and the complexity that goes with that is rather inconvenient and therefore gets narrowed down into a partial view of what's going on and, and, and only certain parts of the evidence base are used because the complexity is inconvenient, as it were. So there's elements of both in there, and I'll come back to that right at the end. So this is my outline, fairly simple. Um, 
First, a little bit about energy policy for those of you who are non-specialists and maybe those of you who are specialists, maybe I'll tell you something new, probably not. Um, and certainty and uncertainty, just how uh, the current discourse in the UK is presented, but then I'm just going to give a couple of examples from the past where people thought things were certain and things turned out rather different. But then I'm going to talk through a couple of cases of work that I've been involved in with colleagues and with government on uh, future energy scenarios, which uh, is rather an industry in UK academia and policy and has been for the last sort of 10 years. We've all been living in the world of 2020 and 2050 and what we're going to do to tackle climate change in particular. So how have those kinds of very uncertain types of scenarios been dealt with? And the second is about energy security, which is an area of work I get involved in quite a bit. I co-lead a UK research network on energy security with Catherine Mitchell at University of Exeter. I think energy security is rather different to carbon emissions, because carbon emissions, you, you've got one thing to measure, which is the emissions. There's also the problem with how you measure it, how you account for it. Energy security doesn't have a single indicator like that. It's a multi-headed beast. And so policy has a particular problem with that. You know, how do you, how do you actually deal with it? How do you measure it? How do we know it's getting better or worse? So it's a slightly different issue. And then some concluding thoughts coming back to the theme. So here's energy policy uncertainty, taking the on out of uncertainty to start with. Um, this is a, a view from the Committee on Climate Change, which is the government's statutory advisory body, on what we need to do in terms of meeting our climate change targets. So this is from one of their most recent reports. Basically, what the chart shows is 1990 emissions and 2008 emissions from the UK, in reality, what they were, broken down by different types of uh, sources. So you've got, for example, the power sector in blue here, residential, homes in green, and so on, all the different sources of emissions. But then projecting forward where they think we need to be, both in the medium term, 2020 and 2030, and in the long term, 2050, to fulfill our fair share of decarbonising the world, if you like, in order to have some hope, some would say a cat in hell's chance, of getting to this fabled two degrees uh, future that, of course, all the policy makers are talking about. Um, so preventing climate change going above the average temperature rise of two degrees. Now, even that statement is, with it, is eliding huge amounts of uncertainty, but as I said, I'm not really going to get into that, but you may want to in questions. So this is a rather certain kind of graph, even though there's a lot of uncertainty behind it, you know, which target we should have, what the pathway should be, what the share of the different parts of the economy should be in reductions. So, for example, there's a, a real emphasis on reducing this blue chunk quicker than the rest. The power sector is seen to be the one that you would reduce quicker. And then, as I've said, with this is my addition, keep the lights on at the same time, because the government's not just interested in reducing emissions, it's interested in keeping the lights on. Uh, and also, affordability has become very, very political recently. Uh, Daily Mail headlines about the amount of money this is all costing. Um, facts not getting in the way of a good argument quite often, but, um, but there's certainly a big political debate around all of that. Um, as, as the energy minister said in a meeting I was at earlier this week, he said, um, you know, if this thing happens, the keeping the lights on doesn't work, he will be stacked on the Today programme that morning. But his joke was that uh, because the lights had gone out, nobody would be able to hear the fact that he'd been sacked that morning. But um, basically, for a, for a minister, that's a much more immediate issue, not meeting that particular obligation than these kind of longer-term pathways. Okay, and then we've got... Um, the government, under the same legislation that set up the Committee on Climate Change, has to deliver something called the Carbon Plan. Well, they've called it the Carbon Plan. 
every uh, year. This is uh, from last December, December 2011. Um, the language is interesting. The carbon plan sounds like it's something out of an um, entirely different country or a different era in this country. Um, you know, the word plan has been not very common in government discourse for quite a long time, but uh, with carbon they've decided to use it. And that, this is the forward from the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister. Just, you know, a lot of certainty here. It's not only that we need to meet the target, but this is, these are the kinds of measures we're going to have, and it's very positive language. The Green Deal will help to cut energy bills. The Green Investment Bank will attract new investment, will reform the electricity market, there'll be jobs, etc. So there's a lot of certainty here. But furthermore, it's not only that, but this is, and this is quite common with energy policy statements, you're not only going to do the low carbon and do all these good things and it's all going to happen, but it's going to maintain energy security, minimise costs, help those in the poor households. So there's all these different objectives and the usual way of talking about them is that all four can be met simultaneously, um, where actually often there are quite some serious trade-offs between those, you know, and anybody that looks at energy policy realises that. So, for example, if you ask an economist how, what the best way to reduce emissions, they'll say, well, make energy prices higher, put taxes on them. But immediately, that starts running into this objective of the fuel poor. You know, they're going to be asked to pay higher amounts for their energy, but they can't afford it. So there is, of course, a lot of tensions, but those things tend to be rather inconvenient here. So that's kind of how things are being framed. Now I've got three examples, three quick examples of where there was apparent certainty, but it, was, it didn't really turn out that way, just to show that this is an area where it isn't, uncertainty isn't new, um, and it's kind of fraught with uncertainty and, and, and difficulty, an area of policy like that. I've got one from the US and then two from the UK. So this is um, Richard Nixon, um, famous for other things than, than, uh, than talking about energy, of course, but um, in his State of the Union address, um, in January 1974, this is in the wake of the first oil shock um, because of the Arab-Israeli war in 1973-74. He launched what was called Project Independence, very famous sort of um, uh, policy announcement and program that followed in the US, which was basically to say, well, we can't rely on these foreigners for our energy because the prices had just gone up by a factor of four because of the Arab-Israeli war. So by 1980, we want to be independent of everybody else for our energy. We only want to use homegrown energy sources. So that was a very certain statement. What happened? Well, actually, the position got worse. So here's where the, he made the speech here, uh, and particularly look at the petroleum line. So from there, and, and as you see the line going down, basically that's more dependence on imports because you're, basically this is showing the, the gap between domestic production of energy and um, consumption. So basically... Although there was a bit of a hump here, progressively, the position has got worse. So in other words, the US has got more dependent on other uh, states for its energy. Um, to some extent, national ga natural gas and coal towards the end of the period too. Now, I'm not arguing that's necessarily a problem. Actually, I think independence is oversold, and I'll come back to that theme later on. But you know, the, that plan just didn't come to pass for all sorts of reasons, one of them being from the mid-1980s onwards, energy became very cheap again. And so that whole rationale for that policy went down the agenda and became less of an, seen as less of an important thing uh, to do. So that's just an example from the US. I've got a couple from the, uh, the UK. This is quite a, a famous speech. Um, inter interestingly enough, the guy who made it is now 
an energy minister but in the foreign office. So he's come back into government as part of the coalition, um, uh, now called Lord Howe rather than David Howe. Um, and he made a very similar speech <laughs> as minister uh, when he came back again. But this is the announcement of the last time that we were going to launch a very big programme of nuclear power stations in the UK from 1981, again driven by high oil prices and other uh, things, um, but also a lot of politics around coal, you know, the need to shift away from coal in power generation because that was associated with a very difficult uh, trade union who was creating all sorts of problems for the, the government and would create more problems in 1984-85. So basically saying that, well, we, we need it and we should have at least 10 uh, reactors over the next um, 10 years. A program of 15,000 megawatts probably meant about 10 plants at that time. Again, what happened? Well, we did build that one, which is size well B, but that was it. So we ended up with one. And again, the rationale that seemed very strong, you know, rolled forward by the time this one was built, government had then changed its mind again. And that, but around the mid-90s, when that one came online, government was then saying, well, actually, we don't see any particular reason to put, put emphasis on nuclear power. Why should it get special help? Again, energy prices were relatively low. By that time, we had a lot of gas, and we were building lots of gas-fired stations and meeting all our obligations that way. So the rationale that seemed very strong in 1981, by the time this station actually got built, 14, 15 years later, had disappeared. And in the meantime, the fundamentals around prices had changed. So again, uncertainty. What seemed certain became uncertain. Finally, and this is connecting the dots, um, the dash for gas, which is something which has happened a bit more recently in the 1990s, basically a big shift towards the use of gas in power generation in the UK. Now, I dug this out. Um, this is, I did my PhD in this area. This is why I've been looking at page 787 of the Hinkley Point Public Inquiry document, which is where this quote comes from. Um, I don't have time to do such things now. But um, this is basically the inquiry into the second reactor that this, the then state-owned electricity generator called the CEGB uh, was wanting to build, which didn't actually get built uh, in the end. And at the time, the state-owned generator, which was about to be privatised, at the time they were giving this evidence, said of this new technology using gas, well, it's interesting, maybe people will build them, but we're just really very uncertain about the fuel and the cost of the fuel, and are we going to get enough of it? So we're not even going to bother appraising its economics. We will compare nuclear and coal and a couple of other things, but we won't bother about this gas stuff. What happened? Well, here's 1990 when the report came out and the evidence was being considered. This big blue wedge here is entirely made of that kind of power station, the combined cycle gas turbine. So we have seen a big shift since 1990, mainly at the expense of coal, which is the black bars at the bottom, towards, towards gas. Again, a very good example of uncertainty. You know, gas became cheaper, the industry got privatised, the CGB was broken up into other companies, private finance came in, etc. The same people who said gas wasn't worth doing economic appraisals of then invested in it because they were sitting in a very different market context. Again, uncertainty, you know, I'm blaming these people for not foreseeing what happened back here, but it's just to say things change. So those are just some examples that hopefully illustrate some of the ways in which energy is uncertain. So I'll get on to my couple of um, cases now. Um, and, and do keep an eye on time, Roger, just if, uh, if I'm running short. 
The first one is on future energy scenarios, and I'm just drawing on a bit of work I did as part of a panel with the UK government think tank here called Foresight. Now, Foresight's been around for, I think, a couple of decades. It came over from, as an idea from Japan. The Japanese had it as well. And basically, it's an in-house think tank in government, sits in the Department of Business now, basically convenes uh, panels of experts to look at particular areas like the future of agriculture, and in this case, the future of energy in the built environment. And this was its rationale, looking at the transition over five decades to secure sustainable low-carbon energy, but particularly looking at the role of the built environment in that. And because it's looking so long-term, as in many of these areas, um, then one big part of the, the exercise was looking at future scenarios. How could the world be different between now and 2050 in this case? So these are the scenarios that we'll come up with. I'll say a bit more about them in a, in a minute in terms of a few reflections. But um, just to explain them quickly, I'm not going to go into huge detail. But basically, um, and, and these kind of twin axis arrangements may be familiar to some of you. It's sort of half, half a business school type matrix. You take a couple of different drivers you're interested in and combine them to give you four different views of the future. Of course, you can choose different ones. So one uh, axis, which is the one that's horizontal, is saying the world could be either open and interdependent in terms of international relations, in terms of the economy and trade and so on, or more bounded and independent, a more inward-looking UK. The vertical one is more about what kinds of energy systems might developed, be developed. I mean, both include change and innovation, but one is more at the bottom here, new systems, you know, changing the system quite radically. You know, so we have uh, a lot of uh, centralised power plants, so this might be one where you've got a lot more decentralisation, for example, whereas the top one is more optimising what we have, fitting carbon capture and storage to fossil fuel power stations, for example. So, and then they combine those to get these four scenarios. Now, the reason why I'm using this is that these scenarios, unlike many in the energy community, didn't have a lot of numbers attached to them. They were entirely, almost entirely developed through stories about how they might come about, narratives. If you look at the report, there's some quite chunky narratives, illustrations about what kind of world each of these are. Um, and there's only a couple of numbers in there about, for example, an average rate of economic growth and what 2050 energy system might look like. So that made them quite unusual. So I've just, I've put all the pictures in, but maybe I'll just uh, pause on them a little bit. They got an artist involved, said, well, what kind of world are we going to live in, in say, carbon creativity? Just to remind you, this is the one in the top left. So it's existing systems, open and independent, lot of carbon trading. I think they got the carbon trading PLC over in the right-hand side there, for example, uh, very globalized sort of world. Interesting one, with resourceful regions, which is the more inward-looking UK, but again, existing systems. So we had fun with reopening coal mines in Yorkshire here, very regionalised energy policy, quite a radical change. So our political system was becoming more like one which you might recognise in, say, Germany, with more decentralisation of power, political power, not electrical power, but that as well. And then for the ones on the bottom, uh, green growth, that's the open and independent world, but a lot of innovation. Maybe we'd have some long-distance uh, transmission lines bringing in solar electricity from the Sahara, the so-called Desert Tech project coming in there. Um, got houses on stilts, Roger will like this, with, uh, you know, ready for, ready for the, the sea level rise or the, the river flooding or whatever. So there's obviously some climate change happened here as well. Uh, social innovations around car clubs and so on. 
And then the final one is a very local one. And when we do, we've done subsequent workshops, everybody really likes this one, even though we're not supposed to give our favourite seminar um, scenario. Sorry. Uh, so local power, local CHP plant, um, people growing their own vegetables on the side of the street. Uh, no doubt that's an electric bus, uh, local generation of energy and so on. So these are, you know, just again, just illustrations that it was a very narrative, very rich um, sort of picture that told you not only this is how many, it didn't really get into the details about how many solar panels we're going to have and how many walls we're going to insulate and all of that, but it more just told you the mechanisms by which these changes might come about and what kind of world you might be living in. So here's a few reflections. Huge resources into this scenario development process. We ran, I think, or the government uh, department ran, ran about 10 workshops, consultants, endless refining of these scenarios. Emphasis, as I said, on storylines and how change could come about. So it's the geopolitical, the economic, the social drivers. One reflection was interesting around the uncertainty theme. It was really hard to get some participants to think to use the cliche, out of the box. So particularly asking the scientists and engineers, right, think 2050, what kind of widgets, gadgets, new technologies, new forms of intelligent materials might be in these buildings in order to give us more energy efficiency? And we, we kept, they kept coming back to the next few years, what's just coming around the corner? So they wanted to live in the world of maybe a few years further forward, but it's very hard to get them to think further forward. So if you ever get to look at these narratives, you might read them and think, well, where, what's new in these? And that was quite difficult. We debated use of formal modelling to get some numbers because there was a, a view, and I think it was right, that if you got numbers, you would then have better chance of engaging the other government departments that Foresight wanted to engage. Because remember that Foresight is just a think tank. It doesn't have any policy-making or implementation powers. It then has to persuade other bits of government to take on board the messages and do something with them. But in the end, myself and one of the other team members, an economist, produced only two charts, which are in the final report about energy mixes in 2050, literally back of an envelope job. Um, subsequently, one of my research projects has been doing a lot of more quantification of these scenarios. But we got some high-level support for these stories, especially the aspirational visions, you know, what the, the future should look, look like. Um, a certain um, Ed Miliband, when he was Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change, we, we were lucky enough to have a meeting with him and that's what he really liked. He said, yes, I like these stories. We need to be able to say to people, this is what the low-carbon future looks like. But uh, it didn't go much further than that. One of the interesting things I found, having lived with all this uncertainty and all of the other research that was commissioned as part of this project, then how it then got narrowed down into messages once the report came out and press releases got written. And um, I've just, the next two slides are about that. This is the, uh, the biz... Um, site uh, and the press release from the time when the report came out, um, Energy Rethink needed to make homes and businesses greener. I reread it and I thought, well, this is a really radical press release. No wonder DEC didn't take any notice of it. It was all about reducing demand, uh, decentralised energy needs to have more uh, say and we need to have put more emphasis on encouraging changes in behaviour. So it wasn't, we need more big infrastructure and that kind of thing. And it wasn't necessarily saying that is the world we should live in, the local world that I showed you, the last of the four. It was more saying we need to create some space to see if those kinds of solutions are part of what we need for the low-carbon agenda. And then what did the media do with it? Well, Think Tank calls for home MOTs. Um, 
I remember sitting around in a meeting, we were thinking, well, you know, although we're not supposed to propose policies, suddenly at the last minute, the officials were saying, well, we need to have something catchy to put in the press release. So then we debated what this might be. And uh, one thing was, well, why don't we have an MOT for homes like we do for cars? You know, you wouldn't, you're not allowed on the road if your car hasn't gone through the MOT. Maybe you shouldn't be allowed to sell or live in your home unless it meets a particular standard. So last minute thing. And of course, that's what they latched onto. So given all of this, Uncertainty, living in different worlds, it then got funneled down and, and this is the message that came out. So it's kind of an interesting uh, experiment in how these things work. So I was just doing some reflection on this again while preparing for the talk and I was thinking, well, government does, when it looks at scenarios, actually it's quite happy with uncertainty, but it's a particular kind of uncertainty. It's not the kind of uncertainty in terms of when government's communicating about energy futures that has these stories in them and you know, pictures of the future and changes in institutions and behaviours and so on. It's more uncertainty in the numbers. You know, the how many solar panels, how many nuclear power plants, what kinds of measures you want to do on buildings. And so I've shown you a couple of screenshots of the deck calculator, which some of you may have seen, which is basically the brainchild of the, of the chief scientist at the Department of Energy and Climate Change. Um, and it's basically uh, a tool you can use, you can go online and play with it, and basically you can change the amount of contribution of different measures, demand side, supply side, and then it will tell you what's going on with energy demand, energy supply, and greenhouse gas emissions. And the game really is to meet the 80% um, reduction by 1990 target. Um, and this, I think, the, the black line at the top is what you have to get to meet the dotted line by the end. And there's lots of ways to meet it. They've put on it some um, tests, um, including one I think I've showed you on the next slide, but this is Friends of the Earth's take. Uh, not surprisingly, loads of, they're doing loads of things on the demand side. You know, they don't want any nuclear power or carbon capture and storage. They don't mind renewables, etc. You know, there's lots of ways to meet that target. So in a way, that's quite an open tool. It's not government saying there is one way to meet this target. There's lots of ways. And, you, and, and actually, it's allowing users and groups inside the process. The most recent version, I think, is also interesting because it also includes costs in it. You know, this one didn't include costs, or the economic model has criticised it to death and saying it's not realistic. So they include costs, and if you dig a bit deeper, you can also tell it whether you're optimistic or pessimistic about costs. So you don't have to just accept that costs are X. You can actually say, well, I don't, I, you know, I'll go with your central cost, but. Uh, for example, I don't know, I'm sceptical about your costs about wave power or about domestic freight, um, so I want to increase those and see what happens to the result. So it's a very much um, user engagement in process. But I think the point I take away from this is, is that's comfortable when it's the numbers, but when it's the narratives, I think there's, there's less space in, in the debate for that. And it'd be interesting to discuss that. So that's first case. The second case, uh, I don't think I've got as much material on, which is UK energy security. Um, just to explain what, what I mean by that, um, there's many different definitions of security. It has become increasingly important in the UK and many other countries over, I'd say, the last five years in particular, since energy prices started to rise. Um, but also the UK has become a net importer of energy again. We had about 20 years of being a net exporter of energy because of North Sea oil and gas. And so, understandably, the psychology is that energy security kind of goes down the agenda, prices were low, etc. But since we've become a net importer, 
because that speaks to narratives of insecurity, if you think of security through a kind of conventional international relations or military sense, that things from abroad are less secure. I don't think it's necessarily true, but that's often the narrative that's told. But there are other reasons as well. Blackouts in power systems in the early 2000s in the US and in Europe. You know, is our infrastructure fit for purpose anymore? Is it reliable? The truckers blockade of fuel stations in 2001. Um, it, within a couple of days, shop shelves started emptying. Uh, petrol stations ran out of petrol. That wasn't the foreigners. It was our own truckers doing that to the fuel depots. So there's all sorts of collections of issues that brought it up the agenda. And as you see, this is quite a complex issue. It's, there's lots of different dimensions. I think one of the points I'd emphasize here is that the policy world tends to focus on some of these issues. So it definitely focuses on imports. So every time Russia turns off the taps to Ukraine or argues with Ukraine, there's a you know, flurry of activity and worry about what the implications for the UK are, even though we only get about 1% of our gas from Russia. That's still the psychology is very strong. But also this electricity gap idea which is used sometimes um, by lobbies for one technology or another to say, well, the electricity uh, plant we have is old, it's going to retire, therefore there's going to be a gap, therefore you need X technology. And it's usually a supporter of X technology who says that. So, and, and those, are, of course, are important issues. But there are other things going on, such as gas storage. You know, have we got enough to see us through uh, winter spikes, impacts of industrial disputes, and so on. So it's a complex, multidimensional issue, um, and that's why I think uncertainty is important here. Again, my starting point, I said this earlier, is that you know, if you look at it empirically, there's nothing to say really that foreign sources of energy are insecure, actually. You know, there's been some problems with Norwegian pipelines, but we've had problems with our own energy infrastructure. But it's a kind of assumption in the debate, and it's one that's very, very hard to shift particularly when you're engaging with government uh, ministers, for example. It's a very easy narrative to play. We don't want to rely on foreigners, just like Richard Nixon do, you know, and politicians still do it now, even if it isn't necessarily true. And here are just a few reasons why this gets more complex and uncertain. You know, there's this common assumption that if you reduce the emissions, then we'll get energy security for free, basically. Um, so here's Tony Blair's speech from 2005, um, where he kind of reversed UK's policy of being indifferent about nuclear power and said, well, we need it again. It's just, and, and he very much connected in these first couple of sentences climate change and energy security, and then said, we need to rethink, and the two things kind of go together. And then this is Greg Clark, who was shadowing um, Ed Miliband at the Energy and Climate Change, uh, as, as head of the Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change, and he's saying, well, even if it's a bit expensive, we, we, we get energy security on top. So very much saying that the two things go together, they go hand in hand, there's no trade-off. But actually there are trade-offs. Um, and these are just a couple of examples that I you know, could think of. I mean, one is that if, you know, one, one way to ensure energy security, if you're worried about, for example, importing too much gas, even though that might not necessarily be a problem. If you're worried about it, it might be, well, let's build more coal and use British coal. But of course, that's not really that good for the climate unless you think carbon capture and storage technology is going to work. A second might be development of tar sands in Canada. Canada is, is developing that, uh, those tar sands uh, 
very rapidly as a way, partly through uh, for energy security reasons, partly to sell to the US, although they've had a few hiccups along the way in that particular debate. Um, but of course, they're terrible for the climate. You know, they're much more carbon intensive than conventional oil. There's new resource interdependencies. We won't just solve the geopolitics of energy if we suddenly go low carbon and stop using fossil fuels. You know, if we start having solar panels in the desert, I'm sure there'll be a new geopolitics around North Africa-EU relations around those things. The youth of rare earth materials has become important in the political agenda because of China's dominance in those areas. And those materials are used in wind turbines and certain parts of electric vehicles and so on. So again, some of these newer technologies it's important to think through what kinds of new risks you might be facing. It's not to say that they're insurmountable risks and they can't be managed, but to say there'll be no risk is, uh, I think, a bit uh, simplistic. And then system changes. If we have a more complex system, more intermittent sources, again, you can manage that, smarter grids, that could all help security, but also you could be vulnerable to new risks. You know, managing that kind of future power system where we're all plugging our electric vehicles with smarter meters and renewables and so on and so forth. It can be managed, but it's a very different type of power network to manage than the one we have now. So again, can we think about what the new risks might be? I think because of time, I'm probably not going to go through this in great detail, but this is just one way of, of looking at these, these risks in a, in a, in a bit more, more, more detail, um, looking at some of the different risks. And, the, and this is work done by myself and Alistair Scott. And I think the reason I'm showing you is that it did get picked up a bit by the policy system in a, in a rather strange way, which I'll sort of explain in a rather partial way. Basically, what we were saying is that there are these different risks, some of which government has recognised and does a lot of, spends a lot of time thinking about them and uncertainties, particularly around fossil fuel scarcity and disruptions to fuel supplies internationally. One is around the investment in power plants, and that's something which is very much at the forefront of, of many ministers' speeches. But then these three and four are things which aren't really talked about very much, even though in the past they have been important. So one is what happens if our infrastructure fails? You know, oil platforms get damaged by storms like Hurricane Katrina, and that might get worse under climate change. French nuclear had some big issues in 2003 because they overheated, and the river water that was supposed to cool them was too hot, and so therefore they had to derate. And so, unusually, France was importing a lot of electricity from the UK and other countries um, because of that. So that's a security issue. And then number four, as I said, you've had the, the truckers, but the miners strike, etc. You know, those kinds of things are really talked about in this regard. We use this framework to look at, well, this return to nuclear power, because the argument was made that we need this partly for climate change reasons, but partly because it's good to secure our energy supplies. And we thought, well, if you look at these different dimensions, how does it score? You know, how, is it, how, how can you appraise that, that return to nuclear under these different dimensions of security? And I think to cut a long story short, our conclusion was that under some of them, yes, it may help. So if you have more nuclear and less gas in your electricity system, you're probably less vulnerable to shocks from gas prices. But if you build a lot of nuclear and it gets very dominant, you might bring in new t infrastructure vulnerabilities. What happens if the reactor design you use has a design fault or you have a French 2003 type um, uh, scenario? And what about all the gas that we're going to still use to heat homes and so on, unless we go for electric heating uh, and really change many energy infrastructures, then just building nuclear power for electricity generation isn't necessarily going to make home heating systems less vulnerable to gas price spikes, unless you're moving 
the energy system in a very radical direction. So I guess we came out with a rather complex answer, which was a sort of yes, typical academic yes, but. You know, there are some things it does well, some things it doesn't. It depends how much you have, etc. And that's really what I've summarised on the next slide, which uh, I don't need to go into any further, I don't think. But on to the response. We did get a footnote in the Nuclear Power White Paper, 2008, and ah, oh, brilliant, we've got a footnote in the White Paper. And this is, and this, and this is the paragraph that footnoted us. Um, first, they lumped us in with respondents that were worried about gas imports, and we weren't. So obviously we didn't communicate that kind of, because we were giving a rather complex message, but they, they sort of took it as that. But the second bit, yes, we were arguing, is saying that um, gas provides heat. And actually, if you're just replacing electricity technologies, unless you're thinking about moving the heating system over to electricity, then it's not really solving those security issues. So they, they half got it, but a lot of the other points we made, they didn't. But of course, as in many government consultations, they said, oh, we've considered this very carefully, but we've concluded that we're going to do what we were going to do anyway uh, before we consulted, um, and to say, well, basically, it will help diversity, which is often where they fall back with respect to electricity, and make a, an important contribution to security. Now, fine, that's a, a legitimate argument to make, but I, I just find it an interesting example of where you make a, a set of complex arguments, they sort of pick one, and then they move on with what they're going to do anyway. And to me, it's not necessarily that they haven't listened to me, it's more that, you know, how can this policy process, if we're giving a complex message and lots of other stakeholders are giving complex messages, how can they possibly include them all and what's the process, a good process by which that can happen? given that actually on this issue in particular, a decision had been made in 2005 that we were going to have new nuclear and the only reason they were having this white paper was that Greenpeace had taken the government to court and said, you haven't followed due process. So in a way, that's, so it doesn't matter how much evidence you give them, in a way it was going to be very hard to deflect them from this particular policy path. But I'm going to end that case with a bit more, uh, a perhaps more positive message. Um, this is a a response to a select committee report on energy security, which I was the advisor for, that came out earlier this week, and embedded in one of their answers to the committee recommendations, which I had no control over whatsoever. Um, if anybody who knows MPs knows that advisors can only say their piece, and it's up to the MPs to decide what they recommend. But they had sort of recommended, you know, changing the way government approaches energy security, and actually elicited this response about what their priorities are for this area. And actually it's quite interesting. So although some of those things I said which were standard ways they uh, approach it are in there, such as maximise the UK resources, you know, it's more about domestic energy. Actually, they started with energy demand reduction, which, please, Brenda. Um, I don't know if it's strategic, putting it first. Um, but also, they ended with improved resilience and storage. You know, in other words, not thinking about, well, how do we pin down every single risk and reduce uncertainty in that way and deal with them individually, but actually think there are going to still be unknown unknowns, so let's think about the resilience of the system, whatever the risk might end up being and its impact might be. So storage, spare capacity, redundancy, all those things that often get talked about in systems when you really don't know what the risks are going to be. So I thought that was interesting. Well, you know, and, and uh, a recognition that an energy security strategy might be a good idea, but uh, it was a kind of one of those, it's an interesting idea, we'll go away and think about it. But, you know, even if they produce such a thing, will it mean a, a change in policy? But I think some sign of some, some thinking about that. So that's the end of my second case. So I've got one slide 
to, to end with on, of concluding thoughts, just to try and bring this together. And I, thought, I find this quite hard to bring it all together. Um, I think energy policy, in my experience, just to sum up, is an area where there are these myriad uncertainties, let alone the climate ones, which I said I really haven't dealt with. You know, it's partly about the long time horizons, which are partly to do with the fact that some of the investment cycles are very long, but also because we're dealing with climate change, which forces the policy world to think in terms of decades rather than years. There's multiple objectives. You know, you're not just thinking about reducing carbon. You're thinking about security, keeping the lights on, affordable bills, and multiple dimensions of change. So it's not just the debt calculator changing the technologies, but actually some versions of changing the technologies might lead you into needing to change behaviours, uh, change institutions. So government may have to say in the end, well, you know, if a lot of things need to happen at local authority level, for example, as they have now and again, then perhaps local authorities need more resources in this area. Maybe they need the power to actually raise local energy taxes or to run their own energy company like they used to in the 1920s. So there's some real interesting thorny questions around dimensions of change. Now, history in the UK and many other countries warns against the kind of planning, even though they've got this thing now called the carbon plan and singular views of the future, you know, predict and provide. And some of those examples I gave you also warn against that, being a bit humble in your predictions and building in uh, opportunities to change course if things aren't quite turning out how you expected. But climate change is calling for some very strong action to meet a particular goal. And I think, to be fair to, you know, policymaking community, that's a very hard tension to manage. On one hand, you've got people saying, well, don't make bold decisions because you might be wrong. And on the other, here's a target we, have, we, you know, we really should meet um, as our share of, of global emissions savings. So you know, what are the therefore the no regret strategies that are you know, perhaps flexible so that you can actually change course? Or you know, under what conditions do you actually just have to say, well, we're going to do this and take a risk? And I think, just to sum up on the energy policy in my experience, a really mixed attitude, as I said earlier, to uncertainty. So on one hand, there's a real willingness and happiness to keep options open. The 2050 pathways, the deck doesn't say this is my favourite pathway, although if you add up all their policy commitments, you could probably get a pretty good idea of what their favourite pathway is. Not planning precisely how to reach goals, although that's starting to erode with things like the carbon plan, particularly the period of 2020, there's a much more of a focus on specific measures. And many of us would say, well, that's quite right. You can't just keep the options open. But it's selective, I think, this keeping options open and recognising uncertainty. I think there's not as comfortable with uncertainties. I, I, I deliberately didn't make this a binary statement. In other words, they're not comfortable. I just think they're not relatively less comfortable with uncertainties. So challenging established thinking on energy security, i.e. it's not about just about foreigners and electricity, it's about other things too. Or that go beyond the technical architecture. I think you know, the, the, the debt calculators are very interesting because it allows you to engage with the numbers, but then once you've engaged with the numbers and said, well, here's how I want to meet the 80%, then that could have, all, as I said earlier, all sorts of ramifications for institutions, behaviours, etc., and policies. So I, I, I ended up on a, a rather mixed sort of conclusion about how they deal with uncertainty, which is perhaps uh, appropriate. So I'll leave it there. Thank you.